Hi, I'm Diora and this is Broccoli Book Club, a socially progressive podcast aimed at analysing timely and thought-provoking reads. This is the Book Club episode, where each month I'm joined by two guests and we dissect a book within the context of our lives. You can read along with us, make suggestions, send in your thoughts and comments via voice note. It's like a real book club, but in a podcast. The episode format is split into three sections. We start at the front cover, where we talk about our first impressions and expectations. Then we delve into the actual book. And finally, end at the back, where we focus on our reflections and takeaways. This month, we're discussing Humankind, a hopeful history, written by Dutch writer and historian Rutger Bregman. In this book, Rutger pushes the radical theory that most people deep down are pretty decent, which has naturally caused great debates amongst readers and also some expected backlash, considering some of the terrible things currently happening in the world. Rutger takes us through centuries of historical events and challenges the beliefs of Machiavelli, Freud and Dawkins, using plenty of research to prove his point, that humans aren't inherently selfish. One story that stuck out was what the historian refers to as the real Lord of the Flies. While doing his research, Rutger discovered a newspaper clipping of Tongan children who were found on an uninhabited island in the Pacific Ocean. But unlike William Golding's Lord of the Flies, these kids didn't turn on each other. Humankind gives an alternative understanding of history and made me think that maybe we need a new optimistic lens when looking at humanity to give us hope for the future. Joining me in today's book club are Octavia Bright and B. Duncan. Octavia is a writer and co-host of the podcast Literary Friction and B is a producer at Broccoli Content. Now the intros are done, let's begin by discussing the cover and our first impressions of humankind. It was interesting to be asked to read this book because it's not the kind of book I would normally pick up and it's not the kind of book that I would normally be doing for work because we definitely prioritise women and non-binary writers and writers of colour to white men. So I was like, oh, it's a big book by a white guy and all the pull quotes on the front are by men. Cool. We'll get on to that. Um, B, similar to Octavia, this isn't quite the sort of thing that I would usually be drawn to because I think the types of nonfiction that I read are also probably more critical. I must say the size definitely uh, would usually put me off if I was looking at it in a bookshop. When I saw this book, it reminded me of, I recently read in the past year, Why We Sleep. So I thought it'd be quite similar going over one topic, but really kind of looking at lots of different research and also Lost Connections, if you've heard of it, which is a book about depression and mental health, essentially, in the modern world. So when I saw this book, I thought that it would be sort of within that sphere. I must admit, if I saw it in a bookshop, I probably walk straight past it uh, because it's so big and I know that's like such a ridiculous thing to say because obviously there are so many amazing books that are lengthy but I think it's quite bland I thought however I was really proven wrong so did you think that your expectations and the reality actually were very very different? Yeah, I really enjoyed reading it, which ended up being a bit of a surprise. I have to admit, I struggled to get into it a little bit 
because I had resistance and my resistance were based on a load of judgments. And I think one of the things that he gets at in the book is how we all hide behind our judgments and sometimes they're not terribly helpful. So I felt like my relationship to the book taught me a good lesson that like aligned with what he was saying within the book. I don't know. I I guess I had a bit of a snobby reaction, if I'm really honest, if I'm going to get really real. So the title, Humankind, what sort of themes did you expect to come up in the book, B? I wasn't really sure what I expected, to be honest, just from the title alone. I guess I kind of assumed that it was going to be about humanity, but I did expect it to have more of a philosophical slant than it ended up having, which wasn't necessarily a bad thing, but just not quite what I was expecting. And I think for me, it was more psychological and historical rather than about humanity and human nature, which I know it goes hand in hand. That seems strange to say, but it seems to be more for like a uh, an overall look at humanity rather than kind of going specifically. So I suppose humankind, that is what it says on the tin. But for some reason, that wasn't quite what I was expecting. Octavia, what are your thoughts on the title? I wasn't surprised that it ended up being about kindness. <laughs> if I'm really honest, the thing, the first thing I thought of immediately was the book Sapiens by Yuval Noah Hari, who he mentions. And it felt like it was being marketed in a similar way to a similar audience. And I thought, okay, it's probably going to be a similar kind of book. I thought also it was very careful to not be mankind or womankind. And I was interested in that. That's really interesting. I just completely agree. When I saw it, I immediately thought of Sapiens. And I think that's immediately why I was so reluctant to read it because I found Sapiens really hard to get into. Um, Actually, with this book, I didn't. So on my cover as well, I'm presuming we have the same cover. Mine one has this umbrella, which I thought was very sweet. Does yours not have one, B? No, sorry, mine does have an umbrella, but I just still, I I didn't understand what the umbrella meant. (laughs) I, I had no idea what the symbolism of the umbrella was, to be honest. I thought... Yeah, it was, it kind of threw me off. Do you think it's about maybe like offering shelter to somebody else, like a helpful brolly? Also, you know, the other thing that came in my mind was the umbrella's orange and the text is in orange. And I swear I read somewhere that orange is like a colour that makes people universally feel optimistic and happy. Well, let's get into the actual book itself and the things inside it. Um, firstly, I'd really want to know whether you agree with Rutger's ideas around human nature and whether humans are inherently good or whether you think they're inherently bad. Uh, I don't know if I do agree. And part of that is because I wasn't entirely convinced as to what his idea actually was. I don't think he was entirely clear about the goalposts, essentially, of good and goodness, because we seem to jump around a lot and it was never fully defined what is good, what is goodness. And I felt like there was a lot of, okay, humans are friendly or they're not selfish or they help people in need. And I do know that they all obviously play into each other, but for me, it was never quite clear what the overarching kind of innate goodness quality was supposed to be. For example, the experiments with the children, the kids that are in the same t-shirts, they, they like each other more. And that was supposed to show, look, we like people who are like us and we're good. And for me, I suddenly was thinking, well, there are certain aspects of these experiments where we're showing that the fact that we like each other and people who look like us and our friends will go to war over them and we'll do all of this sort of stuff. And it was never quite 
delved into enough, I felt the quality of goodness. I came away feeling similarly to how I went in, which was maybe humans are not inherently evil and they're not also inherently fantastic. Maybe we're just inherently okay. And sometimes we're good and sometimes we're bad and that's okay. So I felt like I didn't disagree with him necessarily, but I struggled a bit to really connect to what he was trying to pose. Just one thing on what you mentioned, you know, that the children who were in the different t-shirts and I thought the whole point of him talking about that was that from the research that we've been told about, the way it was spun was that they only liked the people on their teams, but actually in the experiment, it showed that before the people who tried to conduct the experiment, they were actually really bonding with each other and not wanting to, you know, have those lines of separation. Mm, true. But I think that kind of goes into what he's eventually gets into about civilization and power and all of this sort of thing, and power corrupting. And for me, I felt that perhaps we should be able to accept that human nature can change and can develop and that if our human nature is able to be molded by power and civilization and all of this sort of stuff then perhaps that means we have developed past what we were originally which is you know good what what the state of nature is and perhaps we've developed in that sense i think it's quite dangerous to think about whether human beings are either good or evil and i think that the spectrum is much more appropriate in a lot of ways because the concept of good and the concept of evil are, for me, like imbued with a lot of very old-fashioned ideas about purity and sin and very much connected to kind of a religious context. At the same time, I am an optimist about people and I am an idealist about people and I really appreciated a book that kind of endorses that perspective in the way that this one does. And I leapt at every opportunity he gave me to be hopeful <laughs> because especially at the moment with the world the way it is, like I need it, you know, and I, I really appreciated that opportunity. Also felt that a lot of the ways that he's framing so much information are by necessity really simplistic. And that makes me anxious because as we know, history is written by human beings and human beings are inherently subjective. And I think he does a really beautiful job of showing us how we revise history. I think that it's very telling that this book is written by a man with a lot of structural privilege, because I just don't think someone with less structural privilege would be encouraging everyone to take this perspective. Because I think if you are on the receiving end of the worst parts of patriarchy, the worst elements of racism, the worst elements of homophobia. It's hard to just be like, yeah, but people are inherently good. Do you know what I mean? Like that was my feeling the whole way through. That was my resistance. So while I enjoyed it and I wanted to go with him, there were places where I couldn't quite go, if that makes sense. Yeah. Wow. I had a completely different reaction to the book. And now I'm thinking, did I read the same vocal was, am I just being really naive? I guess for me, my reaction was that I didn't really think about, you know, human nature much day to day. I think maybe I have my own sort of biases. I do remember learning in school that I think it was Nietzsche or one of the philosophers that we love referencing thought that humans were inherently selfish. And I think I really gripped onto that theory because it made a lot of sense. Like logically, it makes sense because 
you know, even if you do something good, it's like for your own benefit because you feel good about it. But after reading this book, like I must admit that I really want to side with the views that humans are inherently kind and good. But I actually think he gets around that argument by saying that because we believe what we're doing is so good, sometimes in those moments it's actually really bad. So, you know, the examples he gave were Nazism and the people who were part of the SS, for example, they really thought they were fighting for their motherland, their friends, their family. So in their minds, they thought it was good. For example, I think that he mentions that in some schools they did experiments where they chose some children with no basis for this. Teachers were saying basically had higher expectations for them because they did some fake IQ tests and essentially they were being treated as though they're more intelligent than other people in their class. And they ended up actually exceeding. And so I think it is fascinating to me that if we treat people with kindness and we think that they have better intentions, they might actually react in a more positive way. I mean, I went through a roller coaster of emotions reading the book. It was quite long, so there was a lot of pages <laughs> to be able to do that. But I went through a lot of emotions and there were times when I was literally like, scribbling notes being like yes 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 and there were other times when I literally had to close the book and walk away because I was annoyed <laughs> and I couldn't read on there were times when I felt like the information wasn't really being presented fairly or conclusions were being reached that were reaches but I think when I got to the last section that's when maybe the last 100 pages when it started talking about the practical applications I wish there had been more of that what I came away feeling was actually at the end of the day, the philosophical stuff, I mean, I, I studied philosophy, so I read a lot of Hobbes and Rousseau to death, basically. And I think it's great to read Hobbes and Rousseau, but at the end of the day, it doesn't necessarily matter which one was right. Even if we don't totally believe that in humans are inherently good, it matters how we treat people. And that's the important thing, and it's the practicalities of it. And we don't really need to wrestle with the ideas of, oh, but I'll be really deep down good people. If you just believe it and say, oh, I'm going to treat you like you are a good person and the amazing things that can come from that. That's when I thought he really hit stride and was like making quite valuable assertions and ideas for humanity. I thought that was really exciting. I mean, I really appreciated him grounding it in Hobbes and Rousseau, but it could have been a shorter introduction, essentially. It seemed to me that so many of his points are underlined by the idea that if you create the conditions for people to be good, they will be. And if you could create the conditions where they're stretched and stressed and under duress, then of course they're going to treat each other badly. And that's such an important lesson for us in late stage capitalism with the world falling apart around us. But I have to say, my other criticism was I didn't enjoy being told what to do in the very last bit when he says 10 rules <laughs> I get what he was saying in those rules it was all good stuff like there's there wasn't one thing he said in there that like made me bristle but I have to say the mechanism that male writers tend to use which is so paternalistic which is this like 10 rules for living it just made me think of Jordan Peterson which is someone I'm sure this guy like doesn't see himself as aligned with in any way, you know, and ideologically, of course, he isn't. But I can see your nodding B on the call. But yeah, it's that is that kind of shut me off from him again, which was a shame. Yeah, I could only think of Jordan Peterson. <laughs> <laughs> that was the, uh, the first thing as soon as I got turned the page to that chapter, I was like, Oh, here we go. <laughs> I didn't want these rules. No one asked for these rules, right? 
<laughs> no one asked for them. I feel like I've read them in, you know, every other blog post by some 20 year old who's like written an article about like 20 rules I've learned by the age of 20. <laughs> so it felt a little bit like that. I just thought, how have we gone from looking at all this research and scientific studies and cases of human development to this blog post style ending? It, I think what I really would have wanted was just his view on what this utopia should look like. Us now speaking now, what I've realised my problem was with the rules was it wasn't radical enough, I feel. He posed all these ideas about institutions, think of people as good, and then the end of the rules, it went straight back to being an individualistic thing and being like, oh, just think about, you know, good things. And actually, if you follow those rules to the T, I think it would lead you to a place of considerable apathy because the fact is people have to be held to account. Institutions have to be held accountable and that doesn't happen by just being nicey-nicey and giving everybody the benefit of the doubt. And actually, I truly believe that some people don't deserve the benefit of the doubt. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters? And why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We're a new show breaking down the anime and pop culture news you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in, hold on. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) And we agree on some things, but not on everything. Oof. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. Listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. When you think about some tragic events that have shaped society today, such as the Holocaust, the Syrian war, or the Flint water crisis, it's a challenge to see beyond the devastation of human history. But Rogger seems to be providing an alternative view of the past and present, believing there's a possibility for change if we stop assuming the worst of each other. Now we'll delve deeper. Yeah, a lot of my notes that I was writing down was, but who started this? Because so often we would have things about, oh, well, there wasn't exploitation until we started creating money. And we all went along with it. And governments, for example, we vote in governments and people support governments. And where did it begin? Because somebody had to start it. So there was all this discussion about how we live in civilization and maybe we're being corrupted by that. And that's why we're not good anymore. And I just thought, well, but then we're living in that society. We live in a society. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess I just wanted to ask which stories and research studies shocked you or surprised you the most and whether you have any passages you'd like to share. The Easter Island story definitely was one that I found quite mind-blowing just how incorrectly that had been 
positioned historically. And I definitely had heard that story told the way that he counters, that he suggests is a misinformation. And then the other one was the the Kitty, I can't remember her second name now, the, the story of the bystander theory, where 38 people supposedly witnessed this violent murder in Queens in New York, and nobody does anything to intervene. And he kind of reframes it and says that, you know, the story has been manipulated and mistold in order to support a cynical negative worldview. And there was an element within that where one of the neighbors who was a witness didn't come forward because he was gay. And it's described how the New York Times was this like virulently homophobic newspaper. And that really shocked me. (laughs) Fit with the whole running narrative throughout this book of just you know, we must always be critical of history and we must always be critical of the voice that's delivering us the history, including this guy's voice, (laughs) because he also has an agenda. And that's the thing. Any history book you read, there is an agenda. What do you think is his agenda? In my view, his agenda is like a Christian one. I interpreted his attachment to this idea of good. And when he brings Jesus in quite a lot and he discussed the fact that he had a crisis of faith, but I felt the energy of a very gentle Christian agenda that was a positive one, you know, that is like the teachings of Christ are good and to be good and they're humanist and they're kind of comforting. I should also say, actually, the other thing I thought that it is very valuable that he says is that essentially it's not cool to be kind at the moment and that cynicism has an enormous amount of cultural capital attached to it. And we reach for cynicism in a way to get easy laughs and to kind of raise an eyebrow. And it's a position that it's very easy to adopt at this stage in human development. And that actually being sincere and being earnest and being thoughtful maybe isn't very sexy, but actually it might be the thing that kind of rescues us from ourselves and one another. And I'm with him on that. I think it's a really good point. And just this one paragraph that I thought I could read He's talking about the way that power corrupts and it just comes out of a thing. He's talking about a study about drivers driving in different kinds of cars. And he says, observing how the drivers behaved, Keltner eventually realized what it reminded him of. The medical term is acquired sociopathy, a non-hereditary antisocial personality disorder first diagnosed by psychologists in the 19th century. It arises after a blow to the head that damages key regions of the brain and can turn the nicest people into the worst kind of Machiavellian. It transpires that people in power display the same tendencies. They literally act like someone with brain damage. Not only are they more impulsive, self-centered, reckless, arrogant, and rude than average, they are more likely to cheat on their spouses, are less attentive to other people, and less interested in others' perspectives. They're also more shameless, often failing to manifest that one facial phenomenon that makes human beings unique among primates. They don't blush. Which I just thought was like very neat, very direct, and like pans out in what we see among our kind of like world leaders at the present moment. One of my favourite parts was the white in our eyes, essentially allowing others to read our expressions as well as our eyebrows. And it made me think about vulnerability and how actually crucial vulnerability has been in our survival and in our evolution and why it's so important. And not to sound like very like self-help, I think vulnerability is so important and clearly science thinks so too. And I just thought it was really, really fascinating. Yeah, I think one thing that 
I pulled quite early on and it's interesting because right at the beginning, Diora, you were kind of saying, oh, maybe I'm naive about the way that you read the book. And one of the quotes I pulled, which I tried really to keep in my mind the whole way through, was an idealist can be right her whole life and still be dismissed as naive, which I thought was so powerful because it's so true. You'll never be proved right necessarily about trusting people because it will only ever be the examples of when you were swindled or you know all of this that gets broadcast are you calling me an idealist (laughs) are you saying i'm right (laughs) i think it's not helpful for us to call idealists naive not necessarily saying you're right (laughs) (laughs) yeah so the passage that i thought was really interesting was the section about the commons because that was a concept that i've sort of heard about sprinkled around stuff that I've read already but I had never really interacted with it very much and the linking with the commons to this idea of everyday communism which again was something that really blew my mind and it forced me to really rethink a lot about the way that we just have everyday interactions and I thought you know, the whole way through the book is talking about all these experiments and showing, oh, this experiment was wrong. We're not selfish or we're not rude or whatever. And actually, when it comes down to it, the idea of when you're at the table and someone says, pass the salt, you just pass the salt. And that is such a small, simplistic, and it seems unimportant, but all of these sorts of things add up so much. And um, get through this unwieldy book. I'd love to have a super cut of all the times we call this book heavy or big or <laughs> just every synonym. <laughs> trying to get it properly so I can read it and it's not too loud. So this is the section, why are we so blind to our own communism? Maybe it's because the things we share don't seem all that remarkable. We take sharing them for granted. Nobody has to print flyers explaining to people that it's nice to take a stroll in Central Park. Clean air has no need for public service announcements instructing you to inhale it. Nor do you think of that air or the beach you relax on or the fairy tales you recount as belonging to someone. It's only when someone decides to rent out the air, appropriate the beach or claim the rights to the fairy tale that you take notice. Wait a minute, you think, didn't this belong to all of us? And I think that's really important, partly because it's true, you don't notice the things. And there was a really interesting section, which was about, because I guess he was tying it into property and the idea that if somebody graffitis your house, you say it's vandalism. But if a big corporation puts up an ugly billboard in the middle of your park, you say, all right, that's fine. But it was also interesting because actually a lot of the time we do let people reclaim these sorts of things. So we do let clean air be taken away from people. We do let only certain privileged people get more clean air than other people. And the commons are being taken away from us quite rapidly. Again, I didn't think we really got to the point where we could talk about how to reclaim it. But that was something that really, really interested me. And I wrote a lot of stuff down. I love that. I guess you said you sort of went away and made loads of notes. Did that prompt you to sort of make your own research? I did do quite a lot, actually. As Octavia said, he was encouraging us to look deeper into the studies. And so I also wanted to look deeper into his posing of the studies just in case (laughs) you know you want to have a well-rounded view there was one part that I thought was really interesting actually which I don't want to be kind of the negative Nancy but I thought it was very interesting it was right at the beginning and it was when we were being told the story of the real lord of the flies the so-called real lord of the flies and it's kind of come into the zeitgeist as how human nature really is the story of a bunch of boys being left on an island and they tear each other to shreds basically and society collapses the society they build 
And he explained this story of the real Lord of the Flies, which was a group of boys from Tonga who got stuck on an island. I think they were there for like a lot of months and they were totally fine. And one of them even broke their leg and they all helped set it. And they were rescued after all of those months, essentially trying to say, this is actually what happens. This is what human nature really was. I don't know, something felt, I didn't know what felt wrong but something felt wrong and I wanted to double check what the story was. And I found a really interesting article by somebody called Malika Gisa. She's an Australian writer, but her family is from Tonga. And she was quite frustrated by that part of the story. It had actually been released as an article before the book came out, I think, by this author. And so she was responding to the article And she was saying that there was a lot in the story that was not taken into account. So the island that they were stuck on was not actually completely unlivable. There were people who used to live there until the 1860s, but the inhabitants of the island got taken by a slave boat. And that was something that happened a lot of the time around these islands. It was called blackbirding and slave ships would go around, open up their doors, say, come and trade on the ship and just steal an entire island, basically. So... There was a lot of civilization left on the island there, so remnants of houses and there would have been wildlife and all of this sort of stuff. And she was very much saying, you know, the story doesn't take into account the Tongan way of life and the way that we get brought up and the things that are instilled in us as a culture rather than as humankind. And I think that was really, really interesting because she was very much resisting, and I think we've mentioned it a little bit, but resisting the idea of the white retelling of this story. And it was through a lens that was not, she felt, true to how it actually went down. So that was something that I found really, really interesting. And I think it showed why it's so important in all the accounts equally with the experiments that he talks about and shows how they're with flaws to do it for everything. I think the critical analysis of things just highlighted to me how vital it is to read things and think deeply about them. The colonial gaze is a problem. It's always a problem. And really to hear stories told fully about a community, a perspective, whatever, you need to be talking to the people from there as well as the broader view that comes with an ideological point that they want to back up with an example, you know. And he is critical of colonialism in this book, of course he is, but I also view books like this as an act of colonialism, basically, like ideological colonialism. And I don't mean that to sound like a cuss. I think it's just a fact. And I think that as writers and historians, historians in particular, they're retelling facts always with an agenda but I think every writer has an agenda for whatever they're writing. It's it's one of the reasons that they have chosen to write whatever they're writing, you know? And like, again, I think we just come back to the fact that it's really important to interrogate what that is and to bear it in mind as a reader and to basically be an informed reader. And you can be an informed reader without being a cynical reader. And I worry, and I definitely worried after reading this book, that I can be a cynical reader. And also that my cynicism as a reader is not applied unilaterally I'm much more cynical of male historians than I am of you know women writing interesting fiction that's the truth of my subjectivity and it's something that again as an informed reader I have to bear in mind but it's complex isn't it I think it just goes to show that the act of reading is as complex as the act of writing and we think it isn't because it feels more passive but it's not true you may have heard of the podcast juicy scoop Wondered what it is? Why aren't you listening? Well, I'm its host. Created it, been doing it for seven years. 
I'm Heather McDonald of Juicy Scoop with Heather McDonald. Now, I could tell you why you should be listening to my show, but my listeners wanted to write the ad for me, and here are some of the things they said. Not your regular Juicy podcast. Catch up on all the juicy topics from Hollywood and pop culture to true crime and beyond. Heather McDonald's Juicy Scoop always has great guests, great laughs, and great gossip. It's a comedian's take on the hottest headlines. Juicy Scoop is the pop culture news you want to hear. No BS, no filter, no filler. Raw, real, and in the moment. Throw in the hilarity of amazing comedians that you'll instantly be obsessed with, a juicy crime story, and a dash of normal life in L.A. moments, and you've got yourself an amazing week of Juicy Scoop. Two episodes every week, every Tuesday and Thursday. It will never let you down. We've spoken a lot about the fact that we wanted Rutger Bregman to talk about his utopia and what that should look like. I want to ask what your utopias look like, based on the things you learned from this book. B, why don't you go? Wow. Oh, imagine. Uh, all right. I would like to see more equal structures in business. I think that was something that you talked about that was really interesting and about just trusting your employees to do well. And the idea that when you have more targets, you actually end up being less productive. Schools, they should be really going for a more creative outlook. If people hadn't believed that I was really giving it my best shot, I think people might have, in certain subjects, given up on me quite early on. So I like that idea a lot. And probably it's from my own personal experience, but you know. And then prisons, the fact that if you can't convince people that they need humane prisons just for humanity's sake and for being nice and restorative justice, the fact that recommitting crimes goes down when they're in the Bastoy prison, I think it was called, cheaper, all of these sorts of things. Even that can't convince people, you know, that idea of treating people well, no matter who they are, and it might actually help them. And obviously not in every case, but you have to be okay with that because otherwise you're going to treat everyone like they are beyond saving. And definitely a reclaiming of the commons, that would be my utopia. I mean, your utopia sounds a lot like my utopia, B, so maybe we can join forces. <laughs> but yeah, I think for me, it really is like the emphasis that he places on community again and again and again is the thing that carries for me in a utopian idea. You know, like I feel like the way that life is at the moment where I am, which is, you know, London, the middle of a very busy and divided metropolis with like vast wealth and vast poverty living side by side and people turning their backs on each other as much as they are turning towards each other and helping. And I do think that like, you know, the perspective of the metropolis as like a cold and unpleasant place is one that we should question as well, because I see acts of huge human kindness constantly. But I think that like, a community that isn't divided along lines of age or race or gender or like wealth is my utopia, where there's a genuine sense that no life is worth more than another along any line. There's one way of reading this book, which is just to be taken by the hand and led through this very nice way of looking at things and a very heartening way of looking at things. But I also feel that like criticism is a mark of respect. And I think it's really important to treat the work of somebody's mind with the respect it deserves, which is to ask questions about it, basically. So that would also be present in my utopia. 
<laughs> I love that. Um, my utopia. Firstly, there'd be no climate change. A lot more progress to be made. I also want humans to have more autonomy. I want them to have more trust between one another. It would be amazing if we lived in a world where we really believe that people are trying their best. And sometimes people doing their worst is actually them at their best. We've reached the back of the book, meaning it's time to discuss our biggest learnings and takeaways. I don't think it's done much to affect my worldview, to be honest, but it's definitely given me a lot of food for thought. And I found some of the examples really inspiring and really interesting. It has reinforced my belief in the need to be critical at all times. Reading this book connected me with some good positive energy and some good like positive thinking. And I really appreciated it for that. So critical and positive. And B, what about you? I don't think it changed my worldview. I think I think I've come across as more pessimistic than I actually am. And this really confirmed to me that it's cool to be kind to people. And I do still believe that. And I think I believe this going in that it isn't about what we inherently are and if we're inherently good or inherently bad. I think that you can lose a lot of sleep worrying about your main driving forces. I think it matters what you do to, for other people and how you treat other people and actually how you treat yourself as well. Because if you spend a lot of time worrying about whether you're inherently evil, I don't know, you might kind of start worrying that that's how you, it might start affecting your actions. And if there's one person you'd like to share the book with, who would it be? I can go first. I don't have one person, which is cheating. I'm cheating on my own question. But I think anyone who's feeling depressed about the state of the world, which is basically everyone I know. When I was reading it, I just thought every chapter, I thought of a different friend I could give this to because I just found it so fascinating and hopeful. I'd kind of like to give it to a lot of news journalists. <laughs> <laughs> because I think that the mechanism, the news machine is something that like we're all, as he says in the book, kind of addicted to. And we also can all see very clearly it's incredibly negative effects. I've had to be very mindful recently of not waking up and immediately looking at my phone because it screws me up for the whole day. As we know, bad news sells more newspapers. Good news doesn't sell. And I think that's something that the book is getting at. And I think it's something that I would really like the people who work in those machines to be more mindful of. Yeah. Let's send it to uh, Rupert Murdoch. <laughs> yeah. No, I think I agree. I actually wrote a lot of people down, but it was mostly institutions. I'd like to give it to our government. I'd like to give it to prison governors. I'd like to give it to power holders, gatekeepers, people who I would like to think could maybe see a new way of doing things. The moment that we can remember that everyone is a person and everyone has the same sort of feelings, we might start treating each other a bit nicer. I want to say a huge thanks to Octavia and B for sharing their views. And thank you for listening to Broccoli Book Club. In next month's book club, we'll be discussing Afropean by Johnny Pitts. So get reading now and send in your thoughts and comments via voice note to voice notes at broccolicontent.com. Don't forget to share the podcast and join the conversation using the hashtag Broccoli Book Club. And if you liked what you heard, why not leave a review on your favourite podcast app? I've been your host, Diora, and you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at the Diora. 
Broccoli Book Club is produced by Jaja Mohammed. The assistant producer is Rory Boyle. The executive producer is Renee Richardson. And the sound is mixed by Ben Williams. This is a Broccoli Production. <laughs>